If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Why did Christianity become embedded across Western Europe in the centuries after the end of the Roman Empire? How far did the old gods of Rome still survive? And how did the concept of being Christian change over the course of the Middle Ages? In today's podcast, Professor Mark Pegg of Washington University considers these questions in conversation with Dave Musgrove. Mark, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast today. You've written um, a a cracking book called Beatrice's Last Smile, A New History of the Middle Ages. And it's a big book with a lot in it. But what I want to try and explore with you is quite a specific question of why Western Europe became Christian. So I'm going to sort of frame the conversation around that. And I'm sure we'll go wider as we go. So you start off your book with a martyrdom story a martyrdom story at the start of the, of the third century. And this this woman, Vibia Perpetua, she's arrested for being Christian and she ends up meeting a, a, a an unpleasant, gory death in Carthage in, a, in an amphitheatre with wild animals. That's one of the, the main things that a lot of people would, would feel they know about Christians in the Roman Empire and they were persecuted and met these horrible deaths. I wonder... Is that true? Is that an accurate sort of reflection of the general Christian experience? Or or is this like the worst thing that happened and there was a lot of other Christians who who managed to live much less challenging lives than poor old Vibia Perpetua? Most Christians were not like her. Most Christians, and I think it's roughly, I think it's only 10% of the Roman Empire at the time, it's been estimated, were Christians. So say the Roman Empire 
has, what, 50 to 60 million people living within it. So it's a very small percentage. And she herself is therefore quite a radical Christian. Most Christians were kind of middling, mediocre persons who got on with life, were left alone, who worshipped the emperor. She's radical. And the reason I start with her, though, is because, one, she writes her own an amazing diary while she's in prison. She's just given birth. She writes a diary. Um, and then we, as you rightly say, we then discover about her death. But one could certainly argue she is in many ways a classical Roman woman. She's a noble woman. But she's also very much a precursor, a foretaste of the kind of medieval world that we think of with saints or an understanding of a kind of around holiness of kind of medieval holiness. There's always this sense of potential violence, a sense of divinity captured with violence that's also meant to be beautiful and sacrificial. And I think that's where she also... She's very much shows us a late Roman, the end of the classical Roman world that leads us into what can be called the early Middle Ages or late antiquity. She's unusual. She and her friends are radical Christians. Most Christians are not like that. It's not until at least, what, a hundred or a century later that we have under Diocletian, we have the so-called great persecutions, the Emperor Diocletian. And that's where Christians throughout the empire are systematically or at least systematically accused and therefore somewhat persecuted. It's our image from old movies and everything else, but it's not correct until a century later. How would you describe the nature of Christianity in the later Roman Empire, in the in the third, fourth century? Can you make any generalizations about how people who thought of themselves as Christians actually thought of their faith and their relationship with God? Our word religion comes from the Roman word uh, religiones, singular religio, which means a good translation of it is just like discipline, correct behavior, meaning that your worshiping of the old gods is the whole universe is split with thousands of threads, if you like, of uh, the noumena, right? The noumena, the noumen, like holy threads. And you're, the correct rituals you have before the gods, or even door handles in your house or your family rituals, so misfortune doesn't happen to you. So you don't trip over these threads, if you like. But morality, if you like, or ideas of sort of good and evil for all intents and purposes, that's what philosophers, particularly elite people, think. This is what philosophy gives you. That's not what religion gives you. Whereas you could argue that Christianity, and in many ways they're, they're absolutely copying this from Judaism, it combines these two ideas. It combines correct religious practice with a kind of morality. And secondly, I would also argue... We certainly, at least we can sort of start seeing it in some Christian writers in the third one, is that they think of themselves, even if they're, they, th- they think of themselves as a minority, they think of themselves as perhaps scattered and lost in this world, this Roman Empire, or even outside the Roman Empire. They do start thinking of themselves as all part of a, a broader community that's universal. So there's a sense that even if they themselves are like isolated, they may be part of a broader world. Whereas part of the, for many, I would say, Romans who believe in the old gods, part of the virtue is, is that it's, a, it's an intensely localised sensibility that every city has its own gods, its own rituals. And people even visiting these cities understand this sort of, this cacophony of holy noise, if you like, which I think Marcus Aurelius refers to it as once, um, is what holds the empire together, this sort of ability that sort of this... It's very disparate, and you you understand that holiness is fractured, but it all holds together, whereas Christians don't. 
Christians try and understand it as being universal, even if they themselves think of themselves as the minority. But as I said, having said that, if you if one were a Christian in the third century or fourth, you still assume the old gods exist. They don't disappear for you. For say, famously Anthony of Egypt, who I talk about, so-called first the first monk, if you like, you know, he's for him the old gods just become demons, but they don't disappear. The long shadows of the old gods still follow Christians everywhere they go. So they don't think of their universe as totally Christian. It's still full of these old gods. Um, and so that's how, if I, you know, that's how Christians would think of themselves. But powerfully, even if they think of themselves as like united in this, shall we say, universal church, which we eventually would say ecumenical. Mm. I mean, you know, if we think of the word ecumenical, which comes out of like the idea, even after Alexander the Great, you know, Greek speaking world, that was the universe. For the Romans, it was the Roman Empire. That's everybody. And then for Christians, it becomes the whole world is, there are always Christians everywhere, and hence ecumenical. So, but what surprises them then (laughs) is then when someone like the Emperor Constantine says, like the Council of Nicaea, or says Christians are no longer persecuted, and then raises up their bishops, these these local leaders, into sort of imperial officials. And then that sort of transforms their understanding of themselves, certainly throughout the fourth century. But, you know, also we can then say that the soldiers, you know, say the Roman legions, because the emperor himself now follows the highest god, which, you know, he now understands as a Christian god, they themselves become Christians. And so much of the army and the officialdom themselves become Christians. And so I think this, there's a kind of escalation of what it means to be Christian, because it's just, that's what it is to be a follower of the emperor. And to be particularly, the paradox here is that it, it coincides with the empire becoming much more authoritarian. That's what Diocletian set in place, even though I don't think he would have thought that Christianity would be the outcome. But there's no question that he's authoritarian empire of the late third to the fourth century, which Emperor Constantine takes over, Constantine takes over, also aids in the Christianization of the empire, is that this is a much more authoritarian empire than, say, under Augustus or Marcus Aurelius. So I do think that's also how Christianity works. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger, talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with indeed use indeed for scheduling screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster and listeners of this show will get a 75 dollars sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash history extra just go to indeed.com slash history extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about indeed on this podcast terms and conditions apply 
Need to hire? You need Indeed. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. If I want to understand why... Uh, the West, why Western Europe uh, and then later the West became Christian. Do I just need to look at that figure you've mentioned several times, Constantine, and the fact that he said that Christianity was was okay, he saw the light, and then everybody was able to follow him? It's a much debated question. Would the empire have Christianized without, say, a Constantine, or would Christianity have just been one of many religions? I think it's unquestionably important I mean, as I, at least as I argue, and is that I do think when he has his, you know, the famous revelation where he sees, he looks up and sees the sun, he sees the famous image, and then he puts on the shields. And he, anyhow, we're talking about the civil wars. I actually don't think he necessarily realizes it's the Christian God at first. I would argue that. I think he knows it's the highest God, so it's very much a monotheistic idea. But one could absolutely argue, and his father famously, was a believer in Sol Victus, Sol, right, the victorious son. So he also also had a kind of notion of monotheism. I should say, this is one of these interesting questions, is that you can even see a kind of monotheism powerfully already taking place amongst believers in the old gods already in the third century too. What I mean is, is and we see it even famously said in the fourth century by a guy called Symmachus, a senator in um in Rome, is that all these various gods are just manifestations of the one God. And that's, this is a believer in the old gods, like many gods. So kind of a belief in one God, mon- monotheism, was already coming into play in the third century anyhow. And so I think Constantine, when he talks about his one God, I would argue he only comes to realize pretty soon, ah, it's the Christian God. But does that make him want to be a Christian? No. Does that mean he stops the persecution of Christians? Yes. I think it takes a long life for him to come to fundamentally grasp what it means for him to be a Christian and that the Christian God is the God of empire. And everybody understanding the God that he now worships. But, you know, but at the same time, Constantine does not stop the belief in the old gods. Even when he founds Constantinople, there's still the old gods, you know, <laughs> come to live there too. Uh, he stops all sacrifices, but Honestly, one could argue most sacrifices have really stopped anyhow. Like people were, I mean, you know, you probably know the famous story of Julian the Apostate, who tries to turn the empire back to being pagan again or Hellenistic in the middle of the fourth century. I think it would have failed. I think by that stage it was inevitable that the empire was going, it's Christianity, because most of the army was, most of the elites had become that way. Can we say most ordinary Romans? I think that's a hard one to judge, though the few inscriptions we have suggest that they totally were willing to see the Christian God as part of the world they were talking about. But yes, I think Constantine, at least tolerating Christianity and then following his one highest God, absolutely changes or helps transform what it means, the Christianization of the West, absolutely. And that Christianity comes to become the dominant if you like religion. But as, I, as you know, I've said a number of times here, it's not 
what it means to be a Christian, say, in the 4th century is very different than what it means in the 11th century and the 12th century. One of the great seductive achievements of religion as I say earlier, is a denial of history, right? The, you know, I'm not a religious person, but I can understand this, is that if you're someone now who thinks they're, say, Christian or Muslim, whatever, you are exactly the same kind of person when you pray as someone who prayed a thousand years ago, that there's a continuity, that not just a continuity, it's the same kind of idea. That's not history. <laughs> I mean, part of what I was trying to get across in the book is that this shifts and change so often, even down to the really, it sounds like a really, banal thing to say, but the idea that Christ is even important fades in much of the early medieval world. But yes, I do, I guess I'm, I'm not trying to, I'm trying not to sound like a me- too me- mechanistic, but yes, I do think Constantine's conversion is inescapably important. Is it also the key, the, a key factor that the instruments of empire become uh, associated with Christianity is that another key reason why Christianity becomes embedded um, in what what becomes Europe? Yes, absolutely. The machinery of empire comes to use Christianity. I, I, that's a better way of even thinking about it. That the machinery of empire starts using the, the shall we say the structures or apparatus of these disparate Christian churches, which had their bishops which themselves by the third century had become not just religious leaders, holy leaders, but also, if you like, administrative leaders themselves within the small Christian communities, that these administrative leaders, the what we call bishops of local churches, so if you think of the local church as a small C church, um, who would interrelate with imperial officials, but also who are feeding the poor, Christian poor, who are, you know, looking after their various communities, by the time we get to the 4th century, where they're being absorbed into the machinery of empire, these bishops are now doing things on behalf of the emperor. And they're more than happy to, <laughs> they're more than happy to be absorbed into this universe. What's interesting, and usually the argument is made, is that in the eastern half of the empire, bishops, for the most part, are kind of run-of-the-mill administrators, always sort of more under the authority of the emperor or under the authority of imperial officials. In the West, though, certainly from the 4th century onwards, bishops become much grander figures. They see themselves as having more power and being on an equal with the emperor. I mean, this is the paradox here. If the emperor shares a bit of his power now with these bishops, they run with it. And certainly in the West, that becomes an obsession that the bishops themselves are these almost independent figures sometimes. So yes, absolutely, you're absolutely right. It's that the empire absorbs rather sophisticated but very localised administrative structures of the Christian churches, absorbs them into the machinery of empire, transforms them into sort of bureaucrats, imperial bureaucrats as well, but also then transforms, if you like, lots of these small C churches into the big C church, right? That they understand themselves really powerfully now as part of a vast church governed by bishops, right? Uh, Bishops are being the most important people. And so does that then mean, and you touched on this earlier, did that then mean that by that point it was essentially inevitable that Christianity, Christianization would take root and become the Christianity become the dominant religion across Europe. I think it's inevitable that the empire and then the West keeps Christianizing. Part of it is because I think it's 
what makes what makes a person a Christian, how you define as having authority in Christianity, how you define as being keep shifting and changing. So part of its inevitability, if you like, is a it's a powerful flexibility that it keeps shifting and changing and absorbing and becoming different styles of Christianity in the West. I would start argue in the West in particular. And so I think it is inevitable. As I said, partially because, you know, if the authority of the person who feeds you in the 4th or 5th century when the empire collapses in the West, and I do think the Roman Empire falls, I do think the empire falls in the West, I think that's a perfectly good reason to become Christian. Someone who protects you, someone who ransoms you. When we talk about um, Christians being kidnapped and ransomed as the empire collapses in the West, those, to me, seem powerful reasons to become Christian, that these are people protecting you, feeding you, looking after you. Therefore, that's a sincere reason to believe in the one God, the Christian God. You've given lots of reasons as to why Christianity as a monotheistic religion came to dominate. I wonder if they all um, also point to the explanation as to why the old gods didn't linger. Why, why did those old gods die away? I think the old gods die away because you have lots for instance you have emperors at the end of the fourth and fifth century who start banning the worship of the old gods you know so you can't have certain rituals i think they die away because the old gods and this is and we often have christian writers saying this quite sophisticated argument the old gods require public performances right require money um you know, like those, you know, those great old temples we think of when we think of pagan temples and that, that's where the gods lived. All rituals for paganism take place outside. And so if no one's funding these temples or if this public performance isn't happening, then I do think that also leads to the disappearance of the old gods in that sense. I mean, belief in the old gods is a very public performance thing, whereas Christianity at least as elite Christians would write, can still take place privately. It don't, you don't, you know, you don't need to see other Christians praying to know other Christians exist. There's a sensibility that it seems as though one could argue that to believe in the old gods is very much a public performance, and you have to see other people doing it. Now, as I told you, lots of elite believers in the old gods start, you know, they start imagining their universe as being monotheistic too, right? There's a one god which manifests in all these other gods, right? That you know, so forth and so on. Why I find this a fascinating question, because it is, when do the old gods disappear? Because, you know, there's a slight burst of belief after 411, you know, when the sack of Rome uh, by Alaric, and then some elite Romans, particularly, but even other Romans, start saying, oh, following Christianity was a mistake. They sort of don't think they can overturn Christianity, but there's an assumption that we have to bring back belief in the old gods. But it's a deeply learned belief in the sense of you read Virgil, you know, <laughs> you know, it's sort of, it's very the seminar room, it's seminar room paganism, or it's seminar room, as they would say, Hellenism. And that's, you know, famously Augustine of Hippo writes his City of God attacking it. But by that stage, even then, it's sort of calcified into this kind of studious seminar room kind of intellectualization of what belief in the old gods. And I only, why I bring this up like this is because I'm very skeptical when people want to say continuity of old beliefs you know, up until, say, the 13th, 14th century. That's what, they say, the Inquisitors discover when they discover people worshipping the old gods. I think that's nonsense. I just don't believe there's a continuity. I think, in that sense, Christianity has become inescapable, that it's even shaped belief in the old gods, that even if some people are doing certain rituals that they're accused of being 
pagan. I think they see it within a... I don't think they are. I think they're seeing it within a Christian context. But certainly, I think the old gods have disappeared by middle, by the 5th century. I think a belief in the old gods, I think they have faded away. And I generally think people, they start... You know, they, yes, they get absorbed into the world of demons for Christians. But uh, part of it is... It's because they, they really require the structures of empire. And yes, you may come across law codes by emperors or other people saying all pagans have to convert within three months. I think Justinian says that in the 6th century. I don't think there are any pagans left. They may have a copy of Plato on their bookshelf or Plotinus, but I don't think that makes them pagan, um, even though that's often the accusation. So I am... I really do think they fade away. And this is getting back to your question about inevitability. So what fills that space... And I think Christianity has come very much for all levels of society to fill the space that the old gods once held. Part of it is patronage, imperial structures, I think a faith in what they can give you. I think even amongst intellectuals who sort of have an intellectualized version of paganism or platicism, that has faded away too. I just don't believe there's a continuity of paganism hidden in, in the soil of the, <laughs> of the West that sort of bubbles up every so often that people like inquisitors discover or so forth and so on. I think they're gone by the 5th century. So sort of moving the story on a bit into the later period, I guess that in terms of continuity, there must be some continuity of structures of, of empire, administrative structures to allow Christianity to, to, to blossom and remain, which, which leads me on to my next question is to why didn't other monotheistic religions have more success of sort of inserting themselves into the remains of, of, the, of the Roman Empire? Was that purely political by that point because the structures were all were so embedded and Christianity had, uh, uh, had fused with them? Well, no, what's interesting about that is the empire in the West, for want of a better word, crumples from within, right? So th though the empire in the East, capital Constantinople, powerfully keeps pumping along, right? <laughs> it really does. Things do crumple in the West. And that's what I mean. I don't think there's like a barbarian invasion to destroy the Roman Empire. I think all the, the so-called barbarians desperately want to be Romany, want to be Romans. I think the empire itself is already collapsing from within. I certainly think what's fascinating about this is, is that as the, as the empire in the West sort of collapses from within, what you end up having is lots of little res publicas, like lots of little Romes everywhere, if you like, people hanging on to what it's, they think it is to be Roman. And part of what it means to hang on to be Roman is to hang on to be Christian. I mean, you know, I think, as I say in the book, there's the famous Patricius who becomes St. Patrick. You know, he's living in Britain in the 4th century. Just to use that as an example, I think Britain is one of the most remarkable examples of a whole culture collapsing in a short space of time, Roman Britain, in the world. I mean, what is it? Something like by 420 or something, before, when there are no cities. They're all disappeared. <laughs> um, like, no one knows how to make nails anymore. But Patricius, when he writes his famous uh, confession, part of what it is for him to be Roman, and when he's writing this at the end of the 5th century, we're already talking about all the boat people coming from, you know, what we now call Scandinavian countries who are settling in southeast uh, Britain. He barely mentions them, but he hangs on to what it is to be Roman is part of being Christian. So I do think there's a lot of that also when you say it's inevitable. For a lot of people in the West, what it means to be Roman without an empire is to be Christian. And Patricius creates, if you like, his own 
bishopric, but it's incredibly, for want of a better word, between Ireland and Northern Britain, roughly, this sort of his own, his own kingdom of God, he calls it, which is doesn't really have these structures of empire, but it, what it clings to is what it believes it is to be a Roman, hanging on to these ideas of what it is to be a Roman. And, you know, he, he, you know, he worries about his Latin is not good because he was captured as a slave when he was young and so forth and so on. So I do think part of your question of inevitability is also amongst certain elites, and Patricia seems to have come from an elite, his father was a deacon, elite family in northern Britain. But without an empire, what do you cling to? What do you hang on to? And part of it is Christianity. But then, you know, famously, these barbarian groups start converting to Christianity or become Christians like you know, famously Clovis and in Gaul. So, yeah, so part of it is an interesting question here. As the structures of empire fracture and crumble in the West, what is left gets tied in with what they think it means to be Roman. And famously, you know, Romanitas, you know, Romanness and Christianitas come to mean the same thing, blur together. So I do think that's sort of one of the most fascinating things about the medieval, early medieval West, is this fracturing into, as Peter Brown would call them, micro-Christendoms, and yet Christianity still is capturing, like, it's still holding it together, but often holding it together by a sense of what it means to be Roman. So, whereas in the East, <laughs> East Roman Empire pumps along. <laughs> you know, the emperors in Constantinople are powerful, and, until we talk about, you know, the great Arab invasions of the 7th century. It is interesting still question that why does this monotheism continue? And I think because it's tied in with an assumption of what it means to be Roman. Even when there's no empire, people are still clinging to this idea in the West. In the East, it's more obvious and powerful. And even though you didn't mention it, I mean, you know, as I say in the book, there's no question that, say, someone like Muhammad, when he has his revelations, his revelations are the highest God too. It's like it's the same God as Constantine. I mean, you know, his revelations in the early 7th century, unquestionably, in many ways, as he says, you know, the Quran is meant to be an end of days book. So it's meant to be this last message from God. But it's meant to, it's meant to end the whole debate we've been, you and I have sort of been having, we, we should probably should move forward. But this whole debate about what does it mean to think of the one God that was going on from the 3rd century. And Muhammad says, no, we stop now. We've got it. And so his highest God is exactly the same God as Constantine's. But then the question is, there's a monotheistic religion. I mean, he powerfully thinks of himself as a, a Puritan, monotheistic Puritan. But that that kind of notion, even though we talk about the conquest of the Iberian Peninsula, you know, in 711, I don't think Islam was ever going to, if that's what you mean, another monotheistic religion was ever going to absorb what we call the West Um I think that you know. I think that's one of the great myths of sort of <laughs> that the Battle of Poitiers and all that. That Islam was going to sweep through the West. No, it wasn't. <laughs> I mean, if nothing else, most Western writers just thought, initially thought of Islam as a form of heresy, Christian heresy. But... There's one thing I really do want to talk about before we finish, though, which is this idea of how Christianity changes, or the concept, the idea of Christianity changes from the start of your period to the end. You've touched a bit a bit uh, as we've talked about how um, the figure of Christ himself may have been not as important as we might imagine. But I wonder if you could just try to encapsulate some of the key changes from how somebody a third century Christian and a and a fifteenth century Christian might have envisaged their faith. What what were the what were the key differences? What is interesting is that I do think a distinct 
Western culture starts developing. One of those distinctive qualities about it, and I do think is an, a different understanding of the afterlife. For instance, let's just say the end of the 6th century, let's say the end of the 7th century is a better way of putting it. We start having in the West, and by the way, I'm defining the West very generally and broadly. As you, as I prefer in the book, I often, I prefer particularly want to get into, the, into after, say, the 5th and 6th century, I used Christendoms or Latin Christendom because I think that's a much more powerful understanding of how people living in this world thought of themselves, at least. Getting back to your notion of Christianity, that had a more powerful idea of giving people a sense of where they lived or how the world they were in, that they were part of Christendom or even little Christendoms, then something they would never have thought of themselves as being in Europe. Anyhow, at the end of the 7th century, certainly you could argue, in the West, unlike, say, any other culture in the Mediterranean, in the Eastern world, Mediterranean world, is that we start having people imagining that humans actually leave their souls and fly to heaven at night, that one assumes by looking in the night sky that you know that souls are flying above you and that they're flying to heaven and hell and so forth and so on. And we have nothing like that anywhere, people writing like that in any other culture of this, around this world. And that's a distinctive Western phenomenon that we start seeing being written about. That, to me, is a huge shift, this idea of an, the afterlife in the 7th century distinctly separates Christendom, Latin Christendom, let's call it that, away from, say, East Rome or the, uh, the what we, people call the Byzantine Empire, East Roman Empire, the rising Islamic world, and so forth and so on. One of the things I try and argue is that I think there's what comes into play as a core penitential culture. And what I mean by that is, is that every sin you do, there's a correct penance for it. And if you do that penance, your slate's wiped clean. And if you do the sin again, slate's wiped clean. So a perfect life is this kind of jump cut so that when you end up dying and go to heaven, you're bleached of all humanity, you're bleached of all sexuality, of your gender. Like the perfect person in heaven is kind of bland. So you have this penitential culture, right? And penitents, penitentials are like these little guidebooks that, you know, they're like, they try and imagine every possible sin someone can do, every possible thing they can do. But also, if you go on a pilgrimage, your penances are wiped clean. And so you can do the sin again, right? <laughs> Just do the penance. But the shift starts taking place in the 11th century and into the 12th century. And then I call that into rise into a confessional culture. And what I mean by that is it's a sense of the self as continuously moving through time, that the small child you were actually has some relationship to you as a young adult, as to you as an old person, so forth and so on. I know that sounds like a very modern sense of the self, but it's not. It's not natural to think of ourselves like that, that what we did as children has some huge bearing on us right now. And because, as I said, the penitential culture is jump cuts. What starts shifting is the idea that there's a unbreakable continuity in our lives, that we move through time in a forward motion, that there's a linear sense of self. A lot of that is based on obsession with the life of Christ. Um, I think that it's hard to say the two come together. We get a burst of autobiography for the first time in the 12th century that we hadn't really seen for 500 or 600 years. And obviously the idea of confession, right, that you talk about yourself and that you see connections in your life. And what I mean by that, and why I think this is a powerful model that shows a huge shift, is that, not surprisingly, we start getting ideas of purgatory and heaven and hell, and that the person you are in death is a continuity of you in life. 
that you are the same person in death. Remember I told you, I said in the penitential culture, the kind of perfect person in heaven when you die is kind of bland. <laughs> you want to be bleached of all, all your identity in some sense. Whereas now it carries over. Not surprisingly, if you think of it like that, the first time we really get ghosts in the West is around 1200. Um, you know, um, is that these are people who have died, they are real people. And so it, part of what I'm trying to get across here is this shift in identity, how you understand what makes a human. It's a really, for me, a profound shift. Famously, the Fourth Lateran Council says everybody has to confess once a year. But really, it's the rise of things like the Inquisition that sort of start telling people how to think about themselves. And so, and I even mean peasants. What I'm talking about here is that the ability to talk about yourself and that to see connections in your life, that things you thought were innocent now have huge implications because you have to think how the, the connection goes. And it's just incredibly new in the 12th and into the 13th century. And that's just not how an early medieval person thought of themselves. And in many ways, there is, you may do still penances for a sin, but you can be asked about it again. It never leaves your identity. That's a better way of putting it. The penitential culture means you can wipe the slate clean. You never can in the high Middle Ages from the 12th, 13th centuries onwards. Whatever you sin you do is always part of your identity, even if you confess it. And so end up talking about yourself also becomes in and of itself all that you need to do. And therefore, if that leads to you, then in death, you are exactly the same kind of person you were in life. Therefore, and you know, famously, purgatory is between heaven and hell, and that has our sense of time too. So, you know, if you like, our world spills over into the afterlife. But I do think these, that's a huge shift from this penitential culture of the early medieval world. And when I say, and ironically, the penitential culture, again, don't get me wrong, Christ is important, but they rarely talk about Christ in the same way. Um, you know, there's that famous English poem, The Dream of the Rood, which is all about the cross being crucified, not about Christ. <laughs> the cross even gets annoyed at one point saying, he goes up to heaven to, with, to be with his father, and here I am with the wounds and his blood on me. So it's not obvious that Christ is even crucial to understanding what it is to be a Christian, but that obsession with Christ is also very much a defining idea uh, from the 12th and 13th century onwards. But part of that defining idea is what leads and shapes into ideas of autobiography, identity, a sense of self. And I, as I say, a sense of self that I'm assuming most of you, the listeners think of what makes a Western person now, that you, you and I have some connection to ourselves as little children and that you can predict that I will be the same person a month from now or a year from now. Believe it or not, that's not natural. And that's a creation of the 12th and 13th centuries and makes the West very distinctly different. I should also say... Part of what also the phenomena it ties in to is, if you think of the early medieval West, Christendoms, if you like, as having borders, there's still like in a sense of that Christendom itself doesn't encompass the world. Christians may be in the world, but all these little Christendoms. And even when Urban II proclaims the first crusade, right, 1095, he certainly has an assumption there's, there's a world outside Christendom, right? That the, that the crusaders, there's no word for crusaders yet, but the pilgrims, as he calls them, they do still think they're leaving Christendom, Latin Christendom, to go and what, help the emperor in Constantinople initially. What I mean by that is, but famously, Innocent III, perhaps the greatest pope of the Middle Ages, and this is an idea, you could say, anyhow, around 1200, that all humans who've ever lived in all time and space is Christendom. So all humans who've ever lived have had the revelation of Christ. So Christendom encompasses the world. And that means everybody in the world 
has had the revelation of Christ, and if they are deliberately not choosing to be Christian, then they start being accused of being heretics. Not just heresy within the West, which, but also Jews start being identified called heretics in the 13th century. Muslims are identified as heretics. Even Mongols are called heretics. So this is a, a really powerful idea that the idea that Christendom encompasses the whole world and all time and space. Now, I would argue that breaks down, not surprisingly, after the Black Death, right? So it breaks down after the plague years of 1347 um, to 49, but 50, so on and so on. And as Christendom breaks down, this idea of Christendom encompassing the world breaks down, what comes into its place is Europe. <laughs> what comes into its place is people starting no longer identifying themselves as being Christians, part of Christendom first. They're still Christians, but they're now Christians within kingdoms, within regions, in a way that I don't think we saw there. But I think that's a profound shift in how we understand ourselves, how we understand the past. And if, as I said, if nothing else, it shows that even just something really basic, how you and I think of ourselves, is not obvious or natural. There's no natural way of thinking of yourself. That was Professor Mark Pegg. His book, Beatrice's Last Smile, A New History of the Middle Ages, is published by OUP. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Brittany Colley.